WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guests are the creators of the new Dark Horse Comics graphic novel, Under Kingdom, Marie Enger and Christoph Bogarch. Welcome. Thank you so much. So uh, we like to start by asking, uh, what are some of the first comics that each of you remembers reading? Uh, Marie, why don't you go first? Oh, my God. Uh, Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, but in pieces over the Internet. So I would find like a JPEG here or there, and I kind of pieced them together into like what I thought maybe the comic was as a intrepid teen on the Internet. I was incredibly off, but I didn't read the actual comic then until I was in my 20s. And uh, yeah, it was super weird. I had it. I had it super wrong. Awesome. Christoph, how about you? Yeah, I think for me, it was probably one of, excuse me, when I was growing up, Simpsons comics were big, mm. especially because they were like, so compared to like, you know, uh, other comics, very accessible because they were like just sold in like regular shops here. So like supermarkets would have them and they wouldn't really have any other comics. So yeah, I got very, and I loved the Simpsons. So I got very into Simpsons comics when I was sort of 13, 14. And that was kind of my first dip into that world, I think. Matt, Simpsons comics. How many of them do you have in your uh, piles of boxes? <laughs> um, <laughs> bits and pieces of the run. I, all the Gail Simone stuff, since her first comics were Simpsons comics. Oh, yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. She started out doing Simpsons comics before uh, Birds of Prey. And uh, a handful. Paul Dean needed a few. All the Treehouse of Horrors because they got That's right. crazy creators. Like you'd, you'd get, like, I mean, Sergio Aragones, Dan Breton, like really fascinating creators to do all of those. Wild, yeah. The the funny thing was when I was reading them, I didn't kind of understand how comics were made, and I just assumed very stupidly that Matt Groening did them all, which is so, in hindsight, very dumb. That's really <laughs> but, cute, though. But I, yeah, I was kid? like, well, he's doing them all, so I'll keep reading them. He he's been working under constant crunch in that animation studio by Thank himself. You, for, uh... <laughs> no, Homer. We really show animation live. It's very hard on the animator's wrists. <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely would be keen to come, go back to some of those Simpsons comics. You now I kind of know some of the writers that have gone through. And I know I definitely, in hindsight, when Gail Simone has like posted some of the Simpsons stuff she's done on her Twitter, I like recognize a bunch of them. So I imagine, yeah, I, I imagine it was one of her run that I read. So uh, you both got to do C2E2 a couple weeks ago. Um, how how was that, Christoph? Was that your first time back in the states since you know before the pandemic? Or, or yeah, whatever? no. So I was at uh, I did New York Comic Con uh, late last year. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, but I was talking to people because the kind of consensus uh, about C two Ejo was everyone was just perpetually tired. Um, but, and I think even though it was only a three day con and like way more chill than some of the other cons I've been to in terms of um. People were getting early nights and being sensible as opposed to like going out and doing stuff after the con. But I think everyone just kind of had this post-COVID energy for like New York. And now we're just, everyone's just out of energy. And so C2E2 was really fun, but it was very, a very subdued con in a lot of ways, I think. <laughs> At least from the creator's perspective. Mm. Okay. What was the, uh, what was the most Chicago thing that you got to do uh, in Chicago? So we did, we went to G- myself, uh, my friend Beck, who's from the UK, and their partner Ben all went to Giordano's, and we fucked up because we didn't realize how big the, the pizzas were. So we ordered a small each, and then they came out, and we were like, <gasps> we are oh. like, oh no, we, what have we done? <laughs> so I feel like over-ordering over like deep dish pizza felt like a very American experience. <laughs> What did you What did you do when they brought those pizzas out to you? We just kind of, you know what, Ben and me, you know, Ben did a really good effort. So Ben managed <laughs> to get through maybe like three quarters of his. Of his oh, uh, oh my god! I only got through half of mine, um, so we just ended up taking them home. But yeah, it was a. I it, look, it was a whole thing. Oh my god. So that's, that's probably the most Chicago so thing we did, I think. 
Yeah, it was way too much. <laughs> and of course, Deep Dish is just like a casserole as well. So it's not like it's, yeah, you can't really, it's like it's kind of hard to like eat a bunch of it anyway, let alone, yeah, a whole a whole small pie. It's two-thirds oh. dough. Yeah. <laughs> Delicious dough. Oh, yeah. No Delicious deep dish like It was good, dough. but it was, yeah. I'm so jealous of your deep dish pizza. I'm so jealous of your three deep dish pizzas that you too all many. had. Too, too, too many. <laughs> your bounty of pizzas. Three personal was... deep dish pizza. Yeah. This was the first time I'd met Beck uh, and Ben in real life, too. So mm-hmm. immediately it went off, started off on a real high note of, of us just absolutely messing up ordering pizza. Doing it so so right. Wait, messing up or doing it better. That's true. Look. <laughs> that, that's true. Just embrace embrace the American way. Three pizzas, a small each. I even I think that as American, I would have felt that that would have been too much pizza. Surely, surely it was too much pizza. It, here's the thing. I'm used to when I go to the US, I do it every time. I just forget that everything's bigger, especially because often the largest sizes are comparable to like the price I would pay back home in Sydney. So I just kind of am like, oh yeah, it's the same price as like what I'd pay in Sydney. So it'll be about the same size as Sydney. And I do this like for the entire time I'm in in the States. I don't, I never learn. It just happens again and again. I always order like the biggest coffee and yeah, just too much food. And yeah, you'd think I would learn because, you know, I've been going to the States two times a year for several years now, but not do it every time. Mistakes. Well, I, you can never have too much coffee. Um, actually, that's probably not true. But look at it, way. yeah. Because <laughs> um, in large, like what you guys call a, a large is maybe like two to three times what our large is. So like this is this is a large here, right? So that's like a uh, there we go. That's like a that's like a small in the U.S. But here it's like yeah yeah yeah. yeah. It's like it, a lot of coffee. It does look dainty in your hand. Yes, <laughs> it does. Yeah. <laughs> I know if I brought that back as a large coffee, I'd be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> like three of them. Three of them and pour into a gallon jug or a liter jug. Yeah, no, it's 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 funny whenever I go into you know, I we we you know, our Keurig machine goes up to twelve ounces and then I step into oh, wow. you know, uh local reference Wawa and it's it's you know, that's their smallest twelve ounces and then it goes up to twenty four. That's insane. Yeah. I get the, I, the 24 ounce coffee. I've been there. I got the train to once and that uh, was too yes. much coffee. That was a, that was a real shameful experience having to leave the Starbucks with like the bucket of coffee and go back to my car and then drink it for the rest of the afternoon. No good. No good. Would not recommend too much. It's, it's a child size coffee. It's literally the size of a child. Yeah. 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 I had to buckle into, into my seatbelt, into my car with its seatbelt and keep it safe. Delicious, kind of. <laughs> Not to know. go on another tangent, Dan, but I had some questions about Wawa. Is Wawa good? I've heard it's very good. Yes, yes. As a South Jersey resident, uh, I can confirm Wawa is good, especially right. the coffee. Excellent. Coffee, coffee <laughs> sandwiches can't go wrong. Yeah. Oh yeah, best uh, convenience sandwiches. And as we are from North Jersey, where there are no Wawa's, and we have now both moved towards South Jersey, where past the dividing line, where the quick checks disappear and the Wawa's take over, it is it is the superior convenience store sandwich. Okay, very good to know. Marie, as Marie can can vouch, all I do when I'm in the U.S. is I just love checking out U.S. chains. Um, yeah. I we hit up staying... a bunch. Yeah, no, I was staying with Marie and and their husband Rob, and Rob very kindly drove me to like a bunch of places just to get trash. He was a very okay. patient man. Garbage food. So much garbage food. So you got that Chicago flavor, and you got the St. Louis flavor. Okay. Yeah. So we didn't get to do. We didn't have time to do IMOs this time. I was in St. Louis, but we did last time, and I I'm obsessed. I really loved it. We'll get you toasted raviolis next time. That was the one uh, regret is that we didn't have any. We should have ordered it on Monday. That should have been the day. I know, right? We didn't think about it. It would have been the only place that was open because Emos is always kind of open. 
Well, you hit Philly, hit us up. We'll be, we'll, we'll, I, I can hook you up. Yes, I would, uh, I would love that. Yeah, no, I'm basically what happens is I go to the US and I eat so much trash that Americans get worried for me. This has happened a few times where like different Americans are like, you maybe need to slow down. Yeah, it's bad. Well, you know, every, your, every your body's day. not used to it, you know. <laughs> what happened when you got home? Did you go through withdrawal or was everything okay? Great, great question. I've been all right, but we'll we'll see what happens. That said, I haven't like maybe the more vegetables I eat, I'll like go through. Yeah, like reject my body will reject nutrients. It doesn't want that. Uh, don't you understand that pizza is a vegetable now? Vegetable <laughs> is pizza. So stop eating all those things that grow in the ground. Those are no good for you any longer. Pizza is where it's at. <laughs> Thank you, President Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, y'all are here to talk about Under Kingdom, which is uh, your new graphic novel uh, due out April 19th in Comic Shots from Dark Horse. Yeah. Matt, kindly tell the listeners what they've won. After the sudden disappearance of his mom, high school freshman Shay is thrust into a secret world of monsters that exists underneath his small West Virginian town of Humble Valley. With the help of his shape-shifting Aunt Sabelle, he must search for his mother while doing what he can to safeguard the citizens of the under kingdom and try to maintain his normal high school life. If that wasn't enough, Shay is a strict pacifist in a world that is demanding he go to war to protect it. So uh, what is the origin of this project? Oh, Christoph, this is on you. Do you want me to go first? All right. I think so. Yeah. So basically maybe like, why? Oh, no, more than that. Ages ago, I kind of had the the very basic idea of Under Kingdom in terms of like it's a, it's a dude. His mom disappears, and he finds out he has to to run uh a, like a dungeon kind of world underneath his town. But originally, it was I kind of thought of it as like a dark fantasy adult thing, and it very quickly became Breaking Bad with monsters, which mm-hmm. is not really like I'm sure someone could write that really well, but I'm not I'm not the guy to write that. So I kind of like shelved the idea and didn't think any more of it and then in 20 i think it was 2018 marie sort of uh, we marie and i had been chatting a bunch uh we met at emerald city and just kind of kept chatting online afterwards and they'd been asked by a publisher to submit uh, to submit like a middle grade or ya pitch and they they were like you know do you have any ideas and that's kind of where we ended up retooling on the kingdom so we both loved uh, loved the DreamWorks show Troll Hunters, so we kind of were talking about that, talking about what we liked about the show, what we would do, what we would have done differently, like from a narrative perspective. And Under Kingdom has kind of fit that bill really well. And as soon as I kind of took it to Marie, the the project had completely changed and evolved, and kind of became what it actually is now. And uh, how did it how did it find its way to uh, to Dark Horse? The initial publisher rejected it. <laughs> we sent it okay. in, and they were and they were like, "We don't, we don't actually want that." And so we were like, "Well, we." I had done work with Dark Horse in the past, and so we had an editorial connection there, and we were able to just kind of pick it up, move it to the next place. And I think if it hadn't had found its house at Dark Horse, we would have picked it up and moved it to somewhere else, and. I we're kind of at the point now where we've we've both kind of um there's like enough interest for the two of us to kind of try to keep the project going no matter what. Like we've really enjoyed working on it. It's been really cathartic. It's just kind of like a, a very joyful project to work on because it it even in the moments where it gets kind of serious, neither of us take it in a super dark, serious place. So it's always just kind of like I don't know, it's really refreshing to always return and work on it. So there's a lot of desire to keep working on it no matter what and i think we would have probably kept that going if it hadn't have found its home at dark horse i was going to say on the on the dark horse point i think for a lot of creators you know there's both there's kind of two elements to it right so you obviously want to be with a good publisher but a lot of the time it's really about the people at the publisher you know and the, and the people you're working with directly you know i think experience that publishers can change dramatically based on you know like who you're working with. And we're really, really lucky that we got our amazing editor, Connor, Connor immediately got the project and has been an absolute champion for us. And I, I think that was definitely 
Yeah. At least from my perspective, the main reason we went with Dark Horse is that, that Connor really got it. Connor did really get it. And they were really understanding when, because originally the book was like 150 pages long, 120 pages long. And at the time, our representation was like, look, there's there's really no way to complete a book of that scale with the advance that you're you're giving. We got to cut it back. And so we need to make it a smaller book and we need to make it a smaller size. And Connor was like, I totally get it. Let's do it. And so we cut a bunch of stuff out. And I think it definitely made the story stronger and yeah. a lot faster. Uh, but that was also kind of a nice thing where Connor was understanding of what sort of toll this was going to take in this amount of time that was going to go into this sort of thing. And wanted to make sure that there was not a whole lot of burnout on our our end, which is much appreciated. So while the book starts with you know a brief two page sort of teaser of monsters in the world that we'll be diving into, the story really begins with Shay meeting Ed, and that relationship makes up so much of the emotional core of the first volume. As a, a YA project and all and that, how important was it to ground this book in the reality of the characters before jumping into liches and mothmen and <laughs> bears? Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely think it gives we have we have to show what Shay can lose when he gains a family of monsters. And I don't know, like, Ed's pretty great. I would be really sad if I lost Ed if I was Shay. And, yeah, like, I, I think kind of posing him already as a very diplomatic and empathetic figure who everyone got what they wanted, right? Like, Ed got to be left alone to do his thing in peace. And Ched and Al, who I don't think we named the other bully kid, but my other, my name for that kid is Al. Um, they, uh, they got a ball. They got like a, a crazy game they get to play and hopefully they'll go forth and really play that game and all will be well. Yeah, um, it's not soccer. It's not no, soccer. It's, no, it's not. It's, it's God, it's, it's, it's ball. completely different. Um, but here just to add on Marie to what, yeah, Marie was saying is it's just about establishing stakes. And I also think particularly in like fantasy is you can kind of do, and I think with genre, you can do whatever you want as long as it's grounded in an emo emotional truth that people can relate to, you know, and because there's so much stuff in, in Under Kingdom that's fantastical and over the top, I think it made it even more important that the relationships were really grounded and relatable. You know, so obviously with with uh, Shay and Ed, you know, it's the kind of the high school crush dynamic. And then with, with Shay and Sabelle, it's kind of the sibling dynamic. So all the kind of of relationships we try we tried to make them really grounded in reality so that the fantastical stuff kind of feels so you can kind of accept the fantastical stuff more because the all the emotional stuff's really grounded mm -hmm. and like marie said we just really kind of fell in love with the ed and shay relationship and we really just i think we just liked that it was you know we got to play around with the high school crush thing but do it in a way that was really i for us felt really sweet and genuine yeah it's like the the first crush yeah and that's pretty great. It's just like a great kid, especially like I, you know, further in the book, you kind of get a little bit more of the Ed shine when he's given some advice during a sporting situation. But he he's just like a sweet kid. And I think he balances Shay very, very well and would make him want to kind of stay topside with the rest of us. It did make me want to make a uh, Super Mecha Omni Ball with my son, <laughs> just taping together a bunch of stuff in our garage. <laughs> Yeah, a, D a DIY ball game. Yes. Make your own game. Tape it all together. I, I might have to buy the duct tape, but uh, everything everything else is there. <laughs> um, how did you go about choosing the the kinds of creatures that you wanted to populate this world with? Oh, Christoph just would let me draw all the monsters and then they yeah. found a home wherever they fit. So I don't know, like, I I love drawing monsters. I've always loved drawing monsters. I love drawing parades of monsters and lots of monsters in similar situations or doing stuff. And uh, yeah, I would just draw, Christoph would be like, they're in the Beast Bazaar. 
and here's our factions and I would just kind of populate it with whatever monster I thought would fit in and I like to obviously I like to clutter the page but I like to fill in spots with kind of whatever will fit into that shape and so a lot of times the monsters that are in a scene will just be like I needed to fill in a shape of this size so they get a big ogre or a big jelly cube or tiny little red caps were my like little little space fillers but it was just whatever whatever monster I wanted to draw I would put in there and they would work it's beautiful it's a beautiful self-perpetuating monster machine I can just draw monsters forever (laughs) any type of monster I want into the under kingdom yeah yeah pretty much a lot of the time Marie would just send me like uh you know drawings I mean that's how Lemon came about right you'd been drawing Lemon for years yeah he was like my I would draw him in bar bathrooms for god like a decade before under kingdom just all over and when we needed a dragon I was like well I got this guy he's super easy to draw and he is like what the beauty of Lemon is like kids could draw Lemon so I'm hoping that kids do draw Lemon well, look, you told me to draw Lemon, so I assume yeah. anyone can, if I manage to, to draw him. He did him. a good job. He's pretty, he's not so hard to draw. Um, but just to add to Marie's point, I think the the other kind of, in terms of, like, some of the other monsters, I think the Imps are a great example of just kind of Marie and I both jam, because we're both big sort of fans of nature and, mm-hmm. and animals, and Marie had three demon cockatiels. Um, that are all so old and and so cranky. Yeah, um, they're the so Australian the imp- dove. Yeah. So the imps are like very based on birds and, and and parrots, and I think out of all the monsters, I feel like we really the imps are like up there in terms of some of our favorites. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, they've got a very flushed out society. It just sucks. It's just <laughs> dirty and gross, and it's loud, <laughs> and it's hard to draw. Like it. I think one of my one of my favorite drawings that I've ever gotten to do full stop ever is there's a scene when they go to the imp slums and an an imp turns and it's got like a string of beads in its mouth and it's just Oh yeah, I love that. Um, oh, and I was like, uh. <laughs> but it's so funny and it looks so chaotic. And I think in that moment that was kind of where like imp culture really shone. Really <laughs> really strong on that one. The imps are great. <laughs> My uh, my daughter, when she was a baby, uh, my wife had this necklace that was intentionally made for infants to sort of play, you know, like this chunky thing for, for infants to sort of like play with. And, yeah, yeah, like, like a, gum, like a gum at. necklace. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and the drawing of the, the imp with the beads in his mouth had the same energy, <laughs> energy as my... Uh, my my gremlin then infant daughter at the time. <laughs> your, your imp of a child. I love yes. it. <laughs> of all the creatures in the book, which is the one that you would protect with your life or at the very least recreate the don't talk to me or my son ever again meme with? <laughs> Stupid imps, but only because they're based off my real birds and I have a lot of affection for them. Like one of them in particular, we have this, this elderly cockatiel. All of my cockatiels are elderly. They're all very old. They're extremely old, uh, older, older than any child who will read Under Kingdom for sure by like several decades. Oh wow! And one of them is just an, has an extremely expressive face. And whenever I needed a cheat sheet for assault, I would just kind of consult her, and she's she's big into like phones and destruction and being paid attention to. So she always hands it up for the camera. <laughs> And occasionally she'll make this little face at me, even now, and I'm just like, God damn it, I have to draw that. I have to take a little photo of it and use it as an expression, and I'll go copy it. And and I just, I can I can only see her in the imp, so they have to be my favorite because I just love that bird so much. She doesn't even know she's famous. She's in the back of the book. She's so humble. She doesn't realize her her comic book fame yet. <laughs> I think for me, it's probably Lemon or Sabelle. I think I really, really, yeah, kind of just love the 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 chaotic energy of Sabelle and the kind of, you know, like, I just, yeah, really connect with that. And also the idea of, like, you know, we don't talk about it too much in the first book, but if we get to do more, you know, we kind of want to look at how she's kind of an outcast among outcasts. You know, the Changeling girl mm-hmm. all kind of looked down upon 
and even among them, she's kind of the outcast. So I, I, I think I can kind of, re, re, you know, relate to that. And I just, yeah. So Belle and then Lemon's very close as well. I mean, Lemon's just a good boy. And we, we just love Lemon. <laughs> Lemon, is, Lemon is great. Lemon has big dog energy, which I appreciate. Yeah. Like, hey, oh, that was it just loves Pat's very great. Yeah. He just wants, he just wants love. <laughs> big guy just wants some love. Lemon's real sweet. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I think that was kind of like a reoccurring theme and something that we kind of tried to imbue in a lot of monsters was relate them to like animals or the natural world where we could just to, because at least it just kind of made them feel kind of more real and more grounded to be like, well, we kind of have, you know, especially with the emperor, it's like, well, parrots are essentially imps. So let's just, you know, uh, make them parrots, but with like hands. Yeah. What damage a parrot could do with hands. If it had hands instead of that horrible tongue, oh my god, it would be, it would be endless. Already, they can open butter containers and peel, uh, siding off cars with thumbs, unstoppable. That's that's unsettling. That's that's well, that's that scene where the raptor opens the fridge, unsettling. Yeah, no, I mean, you think that if a parrot didn't have thumbs, the first thing they wouldn't open would be your fridge and everything else in your house. They would open every cabinet and spill it all onto the floor it'd be a huge god i hope they never get thumbs well they can because uh we have cockatoos here which are just everywhere and they're insane because they're very smart and very just angry and very um strong and they can like pick combination locks they've been known to like uh pull off anti-bird spikes people will like put bricks on top of their bin so cockatoos can't get into them and the cockatoos will like get rid of the bricks and, and get into the bin like they're just menaces and that's kind of <laughs> so yeah they're just ridiculous so we we definitely kind of put that energy into the imps it's just kind of like cannot be governed energy now when you say pick combination locks are they like yeah. actively listening for the tumblers to click into place that that's my understanding yeah yeah so no if you, and they teach God. other cockatiels how to do cockatoos how to do it so they'll learn yeah. like population based there is like a whole this is a crazy tangent but there was a whole like cockatoo thing situation like going on last summer where they were opening all the bins right and then yeah, like yeah, yeah. people were like trying to combat their bin opening and you could you could see like the evolution of societal behavior between like humans and cockatoos throughout these neighborhoods in Australia as like slowly they would learn how to outsmart each other. A battle of wits. But yeah, no, my understanding with the combination locks is basically if you put like a combination lock on a cockatoo cage, they can like, it takes time, but they can figure it out. Roxy knows how to jailbreak out of her, her cage. If she's, if she's feeling like she really doesn't want to be in there, she knows how to open the door and get out. Oh, really? Of course she yeah. does. Yeah, yeah, but she, you know, she doesn't use her powers for evil too, too much. Just when she's really, really saucy and mad. <laughs> Sometimes you're feeling super saucy. It's like a child that doesn't want to stay in their crib. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's so they never grow up and they bite you forever. For 28 years, they bite you. They bite and poop. Okay, so I'm going to tangent into jackass pet behavior for a moment. <laughs> I would love that. I would love nothing more than that, Matt. Because, okay... Right now, my my cat Bess is sweet and very very dumb. But I'm I'm so in. But the cat that we had when I met my wife and when I moved in with her, Felix, Felix had that native cat cunning. That oh, and Felix did not like closed doors. All doors needed to be open because yep, classic if, cat. if it wasn't, he would be particularly upset. Well, this was behavior I didn't personally encounter because I was fine with the doors being open. But apparently, when my wife would have have people stay over, friends, whatever, who were didn't want the cat in the bedroom and they would we're going to, we're allergic, whatever, would sleep in the bedroom. They would shut the door. The cabinets were the type that if you opened them, they would shut on their own. He would go up by the cabinets, hook his paw underneath, pull it, let it slam, pull it, 
let it slam <laughs> all night long. Oh my god. Yeah. That's so spiteful. That's, That's so spiteful. Right. That's so good. Cats are you know, I so I have two cats. And one Albie, who's my big dumb orange son, is just people don't seem to realize people think cats are independent and they're the least like <laughs> they're not independent at all. Albie will like run around the house screaming until I like pick him up and like just yeah, the the, the amount of like attention cats want but on their terms is incredible. And the this the shit they'll do when they don't get that attention or they feel like they're being ignored is wild. Oh, yeah, no, but I work from home much of the week and I set up in the dining room and I'm just, you know, da, 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 da. and she will sit right on the edge of the dining room on the carpet in the foyer of the house and just look at me <laughs> and start screaming. And then I look at her and I'm like, hey, Bess. And she's like, what? I'm, I'm not I'm not doing anything. What, what's wrong? I don't need anything, anything from you, human. I, I don't. Will you scratch my head? Okay, I'll reach over and I will scratch her head. And she'll be like, "Okay, I've had my way. Now I'll go up and sleep on the bed, right where the, the sun comes in on the wind from the window." But, but blessed life. Oh yeah, exactly. She is she is Queen Bess. She is. I, I bow to her. Everything. <laughs> she, I mean, she's at this point she's fifteen and she is set in her ways. Yeah. So, <laughs> she's. And- an old queen mm-hmm. of her domain of all she sees. Oh, and she is such a bully. We we very briefly took in another cat because he yeah. was the the shelter put him up as unadoptable because he was old and he was sick and they assumed he only had a few months and they were just hoping mm-hmm. to find someone who would take him in. Mm-hmm. During it was during the pandemic and he was his name was Cal K A L. He was just, just big. He was like fifteen pounds, big, long legged, gangly guy. He looked like he was gonna trip over his oh, le- his own weird. legs. And my wife saw a photo of him on the shelter's Instagram and was like, "Can we adopt him?" And I was like, "Hmm, let's see. Big head, gangly. Looks like he's gonna trip over himself. You got to type, don't you, love?" Um, <laughs> But we took him in, and Bess is tiny. Bess is like six pounds. She's never been a she's a little oh. cat. And Cal was three times, was two and a half times her size. And the minute he came in, she's like, "Nope, yep. this is my place, <laughs> oh, and no. I am mm. not gonna." She had zero interest in wet food. She was always a dry food cat. The minute we put down wet food for him, she's like, "Well, I'm gonna eat this." Uh, uh, no, no interest in treats, and, and like we, he loved treats. So we put down treats for both of them, and she was just kind of like poking at them and had no real, like playing with oh them as if they were a toy. Yeah, yeah. And then he tried to eat them, and she's like, whap, right in the nose, like back off. These are mine. He's rude, rude oh, girl. This is, this is such a dynamic with cats because our two cats, Mary came first, and Mary's tiny, and then Albie came more recently, and he's my big dumb cat. And Albie's like one and a half, maybe two times Mary's size. And Mary will just lay into him. It's wild. But then Mary will often make him angry. He'll fight back. And then she'll come scream to us because she's bit off more than she can chew. Which is... Anyway. Humbling. Very dumb. Cal was a cat, but he acted like a dog. Like he had that very like, oh. I'm a big boy. Hello. Yeah. I am Cal. And you love me. I love you. I you love that. Me? <laughs> and he, she would just he he did all the cat stuff like he had the, he'd have the zoomies he'd jump into boxes and best does none of these things and she would just look at him with the most disdainful oh. like you're embarrassing our entire oh, species no. playing to these stereotypes look <laughs> she's 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 a little princess and I, I mean I spoil her rotten and I I I yeah she is is my she's my girl. She's my good. You gotta. But, but but back to the book because I can talk about my my cats oh. all day. Um, <laughs> oh. Uh, so I just I have a, a soft spot in general across mythologies, genres, whatever from Mothman. So a really cool to see Mothman. Just that was was there a particular reason that he's silent or was it just like 
He is silent. Mothman don't talk. Mothman is a silent communicator. He communicates through omens and apparitions. I've been to his museum. I've stuck my head in his weird Christian coffee shop counterpart. It exists. I've been there. I've seen it. I've seen the statue of Mothman pooping. I've seen the man who runs the Mothman Museum talk under his own video recording of himself talking about Mothman. It's like, I would love... If they if the Mothman man listens to this podcast, he should invite us up for the show for the Mothman convention because uh, I would very much like to go see that when it it rolls around. It's like a real thing; it happens in Point Pleasant every year. Have now I, I must find all these things. For the oh my god! If you go to Mo- if you go to Point Pleasant, it's like five dollars to go to the Mothman Museum, and two dollars of that is the hot dog coupon you get for the hot dog place down the road, and. Guy Fieri went there and he loved it. There's a photo of him eating the hot oh, dog wow. and he looks ecstatic. And he's in front of like all these dismembered baby doll parts because it's also West Virginia. <laughs> so it's super weird. That's incredible. So, oh, I love it. You can go see on, Mothman and get a hot dog. On on the Mothman note, originally in the script, I had him talking and Marie just one day uh, met him. Like, yeah. oh, no, <laughs> and that was talk. it. That was the end of the yeah. discussion. I rewrote the script, and that was yeah. yeah it was. <laughs> I was gonna fight it. Like if you were gonna have Mothman talk, that was gonna be like I think when you do a creator <laughs> like a cre- collaborative thing, everyone has like a stupid hill to die on, and I was never gonna let Mothman talk. <laughs> like that was gonna be. I would give up so many other creative things, but Mothman. Part of the appeal of Mothman is a cryptid is that we don't really know. If he's a harbinger of doom or hope, was he warning people about the bridge or did he cause the bridge to collapse? We don't know. And that's the beauty of Mothman is we can never know. He has a little journal that I think he might write in, but he probably also eats the pages. So who knows? (laughs) I I think Mothman is is sort of a Rorschach test. If you, you know, whether if you believe that he's the harbinger of doom or the one who is there to warn you of the doom, it tells you something about yourself. <laughs> I like to think Mothman is my that. friend and he wouldn't let me die. I think yeah. that not, if I saw Mothman on a bridge, I would be like, I simply won't go on that bridge. Thanks for the heads up, Mothman. And I would never use it again, just in case that was the one time that I was being warned about. There are lots of journal encounters. If you go to the museum, you can read all of them. They're all under glass, along with like every prop from the Mothman movie. Every single one of them. Every blanket that a set extra touched every cup of coffee that they didn't throw away quite in the right dumpster. It's there cataloged. So uh, my uh, fantasy creature of, of choice out of the menagerie presented at under kingdom is uh, I've become obsessed with the gelatinous cube as a fantasy uh, concept. Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I'm not like a D and D person or anything like that. So I, I never encountered one until, uh, I took my kids to see onward, uh, three years ago. And now my son's learning how to play and he's like, yeah, dad, gelatinous cubes, they're a thing. And it just, it fascinates me that like in the, in this realm of like, you know, giants and dragons and liches and all this cubes. People love the jelly cube. I have, I have a, uh, I have two friends separately that are getting married together and both of them realize as part of their like marital journey that the jelly cube was their favorite monster both that they had come to love the gelatinous cube in equal measure over the course of their relationship and I don't know why but I always draw them jelly cube commissions and jelly cube stuff and they just are delighted by the whole cube mythos I did a PAX a PAX prime a couple of years ago where they had constructed a life-size jelly cube that you could go stand in and take your photo in the jelly cube. It was like a translucent box. It was, it was pretty cool. It was pretty awesome. And it, it had like bones and stuff in it so that it looked like it was dissolving you as well. And it had already like dissolved other things. A plus cube. The cube is terrifying because there's no reasoning with the jelly cube. It's just, it's just going to be cute. And I think what we tried to do, like, a lot in Under Kingdom was give these absurd and insane monsters, like, rules and, like, personalities. And it's kind of why I loved about, like, the, gel- yeah, the, like, gelatinous cubes. Is like, what are they? Like, what the hell motivates this, like, giant blob of jelly? And that was really fun to kind of try and figure out. And that Alan was... Is, def- 
he's he's uh motivated by british tv yeah <laughs> well the idea that they're essentially like a blank slate so they just kind of figure out build their own personality from scratch yeah and you know the king you have um alan dundridge who just loves british dramas and he's like a just thinks he's a british guy but he's really a cuban at the door so there is a great gelatinous cube moment in the D D movie oh good I, yeah yes. i'm i'm actually really i'm so excited to check that out i, I still haven't seen it so good I, I went once by myself, and then last week I went with my D and D part group, and oh, you know, that would just, be fun. We had a great time. <laughs> I that love so fun. I love that D and D has just kind of accepted that, like, some of its fantasy stuff is just ridiculous, and and just can only really be played for laughs. And I love that they've kind of lent lent into that with like, yeah, the the cubes and the owl bears. I love an owl bear. <laughs> an owl bear is always real fun. Now and a bear, two great things that go great together. <laughs> Do not mess um, with the owl bear. But what I was going to say with the gelatinous cubes is kind of what we tried to do for all the the Under Kingdom monsters was like we kind of wanted this world to make sense because obviously the big trope in D and D is you like do a dungeon crawl and like one room there's kobolds and in another room there's like a bugbear and in another room there's gelatinous cubes and it's like but why why are they there do they know each other are the cubes friends with the kobolds like what's the what's going on how is this it feels really constructed you know like it mm -hmm. feels really obvious that someone's created this like a game world as opposed to a world so we kind of wanted to take that and make it a living world that felt you know, that had rules, that had structure, and that was a real living, breathing play. I guess in terms of, you know, plans for a second volume, because obviously, you know, there's there's set up there uh, yeah. without spoiling, you know. I guess where where are we on sort of like the spectrum of, of manifesting versus, you know, this is happening? We're manifesting. We're manifesting hard. And we're manifesting in a way that's like, please, like, it sucks to be like, read and review our book because numbers matter. But that's like, for us, yeah. obviously, we want to keep working on the book because we really enjoy it. There's a lot of love for it. Um, and I think, you know, for us, we'll kickstart it if we can, because part of the beauty of going through Dark Horse also is we're creator owned. And so we, we can do that. But we would want to keep working with our publisher just because it's much easier to do things that way. It'll make it easier for kids to find the book. And ultimately, like, that's what's important, right? We're doing a book for kids. We want kids to be able to access the book. Um, but I think for us, it's, it's going to be like, what is our... We want, we're going to manifest. We have a pitch for book two in the works. And we've kind of talked about tentatively what might a start date be for art once we get that script ready to go but right now we're just asking people definitely like put in your pre-orders those help us a lot reviews help yep. us a lot word of mouth help helps a lot getting your libraries to try to contact us your local comic book shops to try to contact us helps a lot showing dark horse that you want our book helps a lot in us not just like getting a book too but negotiating what our rates could be for book two as well yeah and uh, yeah, sounds and I really think mercenary, it, but <laughs> no, but I, everyone, you know, I everyone also kind of knows. <laughs> that's kind of the reality of of comics, right? Is that as creators, we want to do this, and I think it's better to say we'll make it happen no matter what. However, if the sales are good, you know, and people are talking about the book, and you know, and, and it's getting in libraries and getting good reviews, it it makes it so much easier for it to happen, and it means it's probably yeah. going to happen quicker. So that would be, mm -hmm. yeah, our suggestion is look you know, pick up the first volume. We want to do more. It's worth investing your time in this series because there will be more. But like, yeah, please buy it, recommend it to your friends, you know, leave us a review on Goodreads. All this stuff helps us bring you volume two quicker. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's that's right. Like, I no matter what, like, it's going to be the speed and quality of volume two that will depend on what sort of readership we get for volume one. But we, we do want to do it. We are manifesting hard. It's on our yeah. it's on our unsecret above ground vision boards. We think about it every day. There's like there's one thing in particular in book two that I do think about every day just because I want to draw it so badly. But it's also like labor intensive to draw, so I really only want to have to draw it but once. <laughs> <laughs>
What What is one thing about this book that was different or challenged you compared with other things that you've worked on? I mostly do horror for adults. So this is not a horror book and it's for kids. And it's like very far removed from being a horror book. Mm -hmm. Uh so that was very different. And that, this was the first YA book I had ever drawn. And the other YA book I do is a horror book. So it's also completely different in tone and vibe. So that was a little bit of a challenge. But Kristoff is really strong with comedic pacing. And that made it a lot easier for me to kind of just fit and flow and get going on it. And I think, yeah, I I think for me, it was this was kind of the first thing I did really did in kind of the kids YA space um but I think for me it was a bit of a you know what I was talking about earlier about originally Under Kingdom was going to be for adults but it, it meant that it kind of got itself into this corner what I realized with kids stuff is I think it's very easy to look at writing for kids as well I can't swear I can't do violence I can't do this I can't do that um and for me, the big kind of shift where I kind of got it was, well, actually, here's all the stuff I can do, you know, and especially for kids are so much more accepting, you know, and with kids, oh, I don't have to deal with like the morality of of, of good and evil or killing or, or violence or things like that. If it's a kid's book, it can have, you know, a positive and, and for lack of a better word, more, more naive or idealistic resolution. So once I kind of keyed into that, it, became, it shifted from feeling like I couldn't do things to like, oh man, I can do so much. So that was kind of the, I think that once I made that paradigm shift, it was, it was really, really easy. Speaking of other things that you've worked on, uh, I got to read Where Black Stars Rise in prepping for this chat. Uh, Marie, you're uh, OGM with uh, Nadia Shemes, uh, inspired in part by Robert Chambers' The King in Yellow. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's this, it's this heavy blending of of mental health struggles it becomes fantastical in the second half. Uh, but most of all, it's yellow. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's so yellow. <laughs> it's reasons. very yellow. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you find working with and around that color to, to tell the story? I don't know. I, it's, I like, there's, there's obviously like the color theory behind it that would be like its own podcast to talk about. And there's, there's mm -hmm. all sorts of nuance with that, but that's all like muscle memory at this point, right? Like I know that blue and yellow are always going to kind of set each other off. So I used a lot of blue and yellow in the book because they would set each other off and there were lots of different cool hues for, for all of those things. Um, I don't know. I just, I just did just felt right. Felt good. Like that, especially that sort of art, which is a lot more free flow than, than under kingdom. Uh, it's easier to get a lot more abstract with color choices like that and be a lot more. And not that under kingdom had any semblance of a natural color palette, but it was just a, I don't know. I could be more abstract with it just because the book was all about being crazy in a crazy dream realm. So I got to do crazy dream realm colors. When you're presented with something in that eldritch horror genre, how do you go about conceiving of the eldritch? Because it's this thing where gazing upon it is supposed to drive one mad. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Do you not worry about eldritch things in your everyday life? Like it's just. I think it's one of those byproducts of just being a very anxious person all the time. Like I obviously like under under kingdom is a different vibe than where black stars rise, but a lot of the things and a lot of the choices that I made in black stars are because I'm, I'm schizophrenic. So I have a lot of mental health stuff that impacts how I make decisions when I, when I do narration. So all of like the little words and the signage that you'll read behind is little extra communications that maybe someone who doesn't have hallucinations would take as just like back, back matter but for me is just commentary that kind of rolls through my everyday existence and so I just add it to the book and it's really sinister in where black stars rise because it's an eldritch thing and we know already because we're going into something that's spooky that every sort of message could be a, a herald of doom the same thing is used in under kingdom like there are moments in the book where you'll see like I wrote little messages on all the signs to kind of accent what we're doing with under kingdom but the tone is much lighter so it feels less uncertain and more exciting and more maybe mischievous. And the only thing that's different in those two things is the expectation of doom. And so having the expectation of doom for an eldritch monster makes 
doing any sort of shape for an eldritch monster really easy to sell. The king in yellow is basically just what, like a big yellow triangle. And I drew him however many times and he was relatively spooky each time. But you, what was creepy was knowing that he was there, like the, ex the expectation that he would show at any time. And I, I think that's just kind of like color theory, muscle memory again is I, I'm anxious all the time. I think about unknowable terrors that could snap me up at any moment. And that's just the vibe. You just draw what you know, uncertain vibes. Correct me if I'm wrong, Marie, but it's about evoking a feeling, right? Rather than yeah. like a specific visual. It's like, well, how? It's a primal fear. Like, yeah. You're just supposed to be very afraid. And I'm not like a particularly detail heavy artist. I do a lot of shape stuff. Well, that's not true. I am detail heavy, but I'm like detail heavy in a shape language. I'm not going to do a lot of like grossly rendered intestines or tentacles or anything like that. I, I have to make do with a spooky book and a weirdly shaped triangle. But the rest of the book is really moody and sinister and all those little elements that I put in there over time make that scary triangle much more frightening in the final final reveals i hope it is and because that's the thing when i often see the eldritch stuff done it's like when cthulhu is a, a you know gigantic tentacle-faced kaiju thing mm -hmm. that's grounding this thing that is supposed to be unknowable in mm -hmm. a form and the triangle is like not a thing it, it's dimensions and that makes it more unknowable and more befuddling which i thought I, was a fascinating take i'm glad you like that because in controlled burn there's lots of spooky triangles all sorts of different colors too because it's an elder chore book for kids um that again relies heavily on mental illness and this kind of creeping dread factor kids understand that really really well because they don't know what anything is. And when you don't know what something is, it's very frightening. And that's what Eldritch Horror is. You don't know what it is. And it's very frightening. It, and it's the kind of thing where it tickles my mental health things differently. Because I'm yeah. heavy OCD, which is all about control. Yep. So it's something that... You can't control that, it. Right. And it, so it's, yeah, ooh, yeah. yeah you're going to like controlled burn. There's a lot of, oh God, my OCD has really fucked me up. Now it's an Eldritch monster. What do I do? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, it's Eldritch, Eldritch horror and mental illness are, they go hand in hand because you're experiencing a world that is unknowable to everyone around you, but you still have to function in the real world as though nothing is wrong. It can be really challenging. Um, and so using, I mean, I think a lot of people with mental health really gravitate towards Eldritch Horror because there's a lot of catharsis in seeing characters react to situations that seem outrageous or unknowable to everyone around them in, in ways that we might react if we were really afraid of something happening in our own lives as well. I don't know. Eldritch Horror is great. Under Kingdom is not Eldritch Horror. I swear to everybody. I won't, <laughs> I'm not scaring your kids in Under Kingdom. It's all nice and normal and good art. I actually drew Under Kingdom and finished it before I finished Where Black Stars Rise. It was just on a different wow. publishing schedule. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad that I was able to draw Under Kingdom at the same time, just because it is taxing on your own mental health to work in heavy stuff like that for long periods of time. And that mm -hmm. was like 10 to 12 hour days on that book uh, for about a year. And having Under Kingdom as kind of a way to reset and feel joyful again was really important in maintaining my own mental health hygiene. Um, so that's my big, not that anyone asked for it, but my big recommendation for like a lot of horror artists is to also work on something that's like funny at the same time so that you can keep uh, everyone around you who watches you work on the horror book won't get terribly concerned for your well-being, And you'll have like a little brevity at the end of the day to just like keep your, your funny chops honed and ready to go for the next book. How how uh, therapeutic is the word I put here, but uh, was it to have Amal tell off Chambers and Lovecraft, uh, you know, in the in the form of, oh. of the uh, shapeshifter? Yeah, I, I, I always I love a good tell off. I before we did where Black Stars Rise, Nadia had been helping me with a comic I was doing called Photogon and Loathing. 
and a character in that also got to tell off Lovecraft. And I, I don't know, it, I think it's really cathartic because these people are dead and they don't benefit off of any of the work that we're doing now. You know, they, they've got nothing. They're, they were miserable, miserable bastards when they died and, and their families aren't even benefiting from, from the work that they did. But the rest of us still have to deal with the very rough legacies that they left behind. And they were hateful bastards. Like there just was nothing. There's there's not an actor in the modern day Eldritch scene who would have been. Well, OK, that's not true. I'm sure there's lots of Nazis out there doing Cthulhu stuff, but they're not being well regarded by everyone else in the scene who's reading it. It's a very supportive community. It's a very queer community. It's a very uh, BIPOC community from what I've kind of started to realize through working with other creators. And I, there's gonna be no justice, but shower justice against these Eldritch, like creators of the craft. And how do you reconcile working in a genre of fiction that would have hated that you were alive, that you would have interacted with them? I mean, Lovecraft was afraid of everything, but really it boiled down to Lovecraft was so racist that he couldn't go outside anymore. And how do you, like when I tell people that I do eldritch fiction or eldritch horror stuff, there's always kind of like a because they think of these old guys being terrible bastards. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it I didn't get to write this particular scene. I just get got to draw it, but it was cathartic to draw that particular scene. And it's always cathartic to write those scenes because it's kind of all you can do is make fun of them. What are they gonna do? Nothing. They're dead and I'm alive. So I'm alive and and I have friends and money, more money than they ever had. So, I mean, because of inflation, but it counts, it counts, it counts, it counts, it counts, it counts. counts. (laughs) Absolutely does. Yes. (laughs) So uh, I read that you used to work a caricature stand at a Six Flags park. Uh, That's how I met my husband. (laughs) Oh, Oh, wow. Good story to your dad. Yes. I, I was going to say, what is your, your go-to story when people ask about that? But maybe that's it. <laughs> well, do you want the gross one or do you want like the cute yes. fun one? Okay, so the, the gross one, the gross one is this. So I worked at Six Flags St. Louis. You can drive past it. You can go to it for like a Coke can, I think. I can't imagine that they charge you money to go in any longer. But we, when we worked at the park, I was part of a group that was called Leases, and we were basically contractors who came in and worked at the park. Okay. Because we worked at the park, we didn't have to answer to the park like power structure, and therefore we're not often liked by other members of the park power structure. Mm-hmm. So they would implement all these crazy little rules, and one of them was trash goes in the trash compactor. So we couldn't empty our trash into the, to the like Six Flags bins; it had to go into the, the trash compactor. And one of the guys had just a huge power trip about it. And one day in the heat of July, we come back to the stand and we're setting up and you set up by like pulling your paper out. You set up the air compressor. Our buddy goes back to set up the air compressor. He comes out and he's like, don't, don't go back there. Don't, don't go back behind the booth. And we're like, oh my God, why not? He's like, someone took a huge shit back there. And we were like, what? <laughs> well now, of course, everyone wants to see the poo. And he wasn't joking. Like someone took like a shit everywhere but what was the killer was they wiped up with all those like little prize ties that you could get so there were these like fuzzy ties with looney tunes characters on them and that's what they had used to to wipe their ass i suppose and they left those around too so we know it was an employee because it happened after we had left i -hmm. think it was the trash guy i think this was his ultimate power move and i think he got those prize ties and he committed this dirty dirty deed but what was worse was Six Flags didn't send anyone anyone to clean it up right away. They just corralled us off in there and like used this caution tape. So it was like four caricature artists sitting at this tiny stand, surrounded by caution tape, the smell of just shit in the hot July sun wafting up. And we worked on commission, so it was really not good for business. Six Flags wouldn't let us leave. They wouldn't send anyone to pick it up. And finally, our boss was just like, you need to everyone just go home. Like, what, what are we doing here? Just go. And that was it. And then the sweet story is I I met my husband at Six Flags doing the caricature stand. For the first time ever, I saw him in a man, a, an adult man's Spider-Man basement, sitting on a Spider-Man couch with a Spider-Man airbrushed mural behind him. Spider-Man. It was great. <laughs> now we're married. 
Um, but oh, it was a good. So it was a good job. Ironic. Well, not ironically. What was weird was I sat next to the guy who used to own the company I worked for at C two E two. He seemed like he was doing okay. <laughs> he, was, he was he was selling the caricatures for the same price that we sold them at the park back in two thousand eight. And I do think that he should raise his, his prices with inflation being what it is. But it's not my business uh, anymore. So what do you do? Oh, boy. So uh, what should we be looking out uh, for next from either of you, dot, 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 that you can talk about? Yeah. Do you want to go fast, Murray? Sure. Yeah. So I'm doing Death to the Wizard Kings, which is a tabletop RPG character building supplement slash comic. And it's very similar to Under Kingdom where there's lots of mega dungeons and monsters on parade and, and magic stuff. But this time you come from a big bong deep within the earth and you're out to kill wizard kings. So that's the whole thing. You get to learn about what sort of vat spawn you are, what sort of goal you have in mind and what you're going to do once you get out there to kill those wizard kings. Um, and then the flip side is Controlled Burn, which is a... A uh, young adult horror graphic novel, a uh, collection of short horror stories about just life and horrible elder creatures from beyond the stars and generational trauma and mental illness, just all wrapped up in one big spooky bow. And I think that'll come out in 2024 or 2025, depending on what print schedules look like, realistically. Yeah, and then my, so I do a book called Meat for Burgers with my friend Beck, uh, Beck Kubrick, and we're just working on issue three of that at the moment. So it's self-published, ongoing, and it's about a bunch of kids who basically wake up in like this weird McDonald's-style fast food restaurant with no memory of how they got there, uh, and they have to like, all they can do is kind of like work there. Uh, so it's very like eldritch horror mixed with like, I kind of call it like capitalist horror. Um Ooh. So yeah, and it's super weird and, and super fun and very, compared to a lot of other stuff I do, it's very sort of off the cuff and, and stream of consciousness. But yeah, so we're working on issue three of that at the moment. And then outside of that, I have Earthsecrets Clevy coming out from Harper Alley next year. So that's a middle grade graphic novel that deals with childhood OCD. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited about that. And that should, I, my guess is sort of be out toward the end of next year. Hey, great. Uh, any more conventions or store signings uh, coming up in the near future? Uh, I'm going to be at TCAF at the end of the month at, I believe, 2040 next to Nick Tofani and Trevor Henderson. So it's like a trio of terror. So I'm excited for that. Uh, and then I'll be at Cake in June, first week of June in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And hopefully Small Press Expo, Small Press Expo in Bethesda. Maybe New York Comic Con if Christoph can convince me that I really I I'm so worried about loading all my stuff into that crazy convention center, but it might be worth it. So maybe maybe there we'll see. Yeah, and for me, I'll be doing a signing at a Galaxy Bookstore on first Sunday, the first of July here in Sydney, and then yeah, I'll be at New York Comic Con. We're we're hoping to I'm hoping to have a table, but it does. But I'll be there in some capacity, but just not sure if it's, yeah, I'll be wandering or I'll be tabling. Right on. Uh, penultimate question. Uh, what are either of you reading right now? Oh, I'm reading Chainsaw. Okay. I'm reading Chainsaw Man on my on my Shonen Jump app because uh, mm. I really like that. Um, I'm rereading Scud, actually, which yeah. I, I really like. I've always really liked Scud, but um, I'm doing this Death to the Wizard Kings project and Scud is... Uh, a vat spawn is anything that's not like birthed by a human. It's something that's like grown in a vat or put together, I think, in like a container. And so I think Scud kind of counts. And I was like, oh, I, I want some like action sequences. And I remember that book being just like nothing but action. But I have the, I have like the big omnibus. And so it's like it's five pounds heavy and a thousand pages long. And it's taking a little bit of time to go through, but it's nice. I like to sit on my book with my little pedestal and read it. And that way I don't have to hold it up and get my arms tired. Um, but yeah, so rereading is good. Uh -huh. And I've been reading uh, Devolution by Max Brock. So he wrote um, uh, well, the book World War D was based off yep. and Devolution is like his take on like Bigfoot. So I've, I've started reading that too. Yeah, really Ooh. enjoying it so far. Cool. Well, uh, Marie Christophe, this has been a fantastic time. Final question as we release you back into the world. 
how can people follow you online and keep up with Under Kingdom and everything else that you got going on? So we have an, a newsletter for Under Kingdom that people can sign up for. And I believe that, Christoph, you have that pinned in your social media uh, like link tree right now. Yeah, I, might yeah, as well. I should have a pinned. And if I don't, I will repin it before this episode mm -hmm. comes out. Yeah, so it's called the Humble Valley Gazette. And that's kind of, we've had like little sneak peeks of the book and some other little Easter eggs we put together. And also that's obviously where we let people know like when the book's coming out and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but you can find me at s o e n g e r y dot com for like my website, and then my socials are at s o underscore e n g e r y uh, on Instagram and uh, Twitter. Uh, my website is uh, christophwritescomics dot com. So Christoph is just Christ with a S on the end, and then all my social handles are at Christoph Borges and uh, B O G A C S. All right, Marie, Christophe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for thank having you us. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a Pete Wisdom Hot Claws sticker designed by Kevin Newburn. A $3 donation gets you access to our bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $4 donation get you access to Our Son Pete and the sticker. A $25 donation lets you plug your crowdfunded or creator-owned comic in a 60-second spot. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis, Robert Secundus, Liz Large, and Will Nevin from ComicsXF, Carla Pacheco, Mike Sagawa, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. The Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF, assuming Twitter still works. And until next week, remember, somewhere out there, there's a Batman comic where all the characters simply cannot stop saying the word boner. W-N-Q-A!